0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Amander here, and we are back for another episode from our Atrial Fibrillation Series, which is a comprehensive, multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of stellar fellow leads and expert faculty from a variety of programs, led by co-chairs Dr. Kelly Arps, cardiology fellow at Duke University, and Colin Blumenthal, cardiology fellow at University of Pennsylvania. This series is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb and the Pfizer Alliance. Of course, all cardi- content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. We have collaborated with VCU to provide free CME for the episode. See the episode page for the link to claim CME and relevant disclosures. And with that, let's get nerdy.
1: Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here today. I'm Kelly Arps, one of the co-chairs of the Atrial Fibrillation Series, and we have a great episode coming up, which is focused on mechanical stroke prevention in the form of left atrial appendage closure. I am joined here today by my co-chair for this series, Dr. Colin Blumenthal.
0: And the master of all cardio nerds, founder Amit (laughs) Goyle.
2: Way too much, Colin, but let me just say I am so excited to be here and learn about mechanical stroke prophylaxis with a phenomenal panel. Thanks to everyone for joining. And finally, let me introduce Dr. Justice Oranifo, who originally joined as the CardioNerds fellow ambassador from University of Connecticut as part of the Healy Honoral of Programs. He is now a Cardiac Electrophysiology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania right there with Colin and is our fifth lead for this episode who helped organize this discussion. Justice, welcome back to
3: CardioNerds. Hey Amit, thanks for that introduction. I'm excited for this meeting today. We're excited to invite our expert faculty. This is Dr. Christopher Ellis, who is joining us from Nashville. Dr. Alice attended his medical school training at University of Rochester, after which he completed his medicine, pediatrics residency, and chief residency, as well as his cardiology fellowship at Vanderbilt University. He then completed his electrophysiology training at Vanderbilt University, as well as University of Michigan. He is currently the cardiac electrophysiology lab director and the director of the Left Atrial Appendage Closure Program at Vanderbilt University. And he is published widely on on atrial fibrillation, as well as left atrial appendage closure techniques. We appreciate you being here with
4: us. Welcome, Dr. Ellis. Great. Thank you very much for the invitation to Cardio Nerds. And I'm glad to be here and hopefully we'll have a good discussion as it relates to mechanical stroke prevention.
3: So Dr. Ellis, we'll get right into it today. We know stroke prophylaxis is a key component in atrial fibrillation management, and we know that both historical as well as recent studies continue to demonstrate the efficacy of anticoagulation in, in stroke prophylaxis. I believe I first heard about left atrial appendage closure during my residency. Now, do you mind telling us, just for the rest of our audience, what is the rationale behind left atrial appendage occlusion as a strategy for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation?
4: Sure. That's a good question. And remarkably, when you look back at the history of it, it's a fairly recent observation, really. One of the things that people point to in the literature about, you know, the first sort of real convincing suggestion that removing the left atrial appendage might produce benefits in terms of stroke reduction in AFib was the work by Dr. Blackshear and his group at Mayo Clinic. It was published in 96 in a thoracic surgery journal, where they looked at patients we knew had AFib, and they could categorize them for sure as either rheumatic or sort of valvular AFib versus non-valvular AFib. And then patients who had a documented known thrombus in the left atrium somewhere at autopsy, uh, intraoperatively, or on a TEE, were analyzed. And basically, you know, if you had rheumatic heart disease or valvular heart disease, they would find even up into 40 plus percent of the time, thrombus was really more adherent to some dysfunctional left atrial wall or perhaps on the valve annulus itself. But the patients who had non rheumatic AFib, 91% of them, thrombi were isolated really only to the left atrial appendage. Their conclusion is suggestive that, well, if we remove the left atrial appendage at the time of open heart surgery, perhaps we're going to impact AFib-related embolic strokes. So that's kind of the first sort of anatomic data, physiologic, pathologic correlation that helped us think that would be the case. Now, TEE, transesophageal echo, is obviously a cornerstone of AFib management. So you couldn't help but notice along the way, I would say, 2000 and beyond as the imaging quality improved and the frequency of us using TE increased. Similarly, you started really noticing like, uh, in patients who were, you know, evaluated for cardioversion or getting a stroke eval left atrial appendage function really became clearly important. And the final common pathway really to thrombus in the appendage, which would sort of underlie why this might work is the left atrial appendage emptying velocity. So even though all the anticoagulation trials that you suggest help us understand that reducing stroke with anticoagulation works, most of the enrollment and the guidelines and indications for this is based on the CHADS-VASC score or the CHADS-2 score. And it's not a great risk score, in that it doesn't take into account anything specifically about the left atrial appendage. Now, there's a lot of details to that. It's a pretty good and easy way to risk stratify people for anticoagulation. But when you take into account a lot of other things that may play a role, they all point to, again, sort of this endpoint of sludge sluggish flow, thrombus formation, stasis in the left atrial appendage, and that's ultimately what will likely cause an AFib-related stroke. So that's kind of the rationale. The surgical data initially gave us a hint and then sort of a practice-wide observation about left atrial appendage characteristics at TEE suggested that this is likely a hotspot and could be targeted directly for stroke prevention therapies. That's an incredibly helpful background. And I know personally,
0: I really like to hear about some of the historical background of all of this. I think it really helps put into perspective understanding how the idea was formulated and how people came up with this concept. And this has just kind of exploded in the last 20 years or so, and we've seen widespread adoption of percutaneous left atrial appendage closure devices and procedures, ones people are more familiar about, like Watchmen but other ones like Amulet and Lariat. Could you tell us a little bit about these devices, how they're supposed to work, and if there are any major differences between them that would cause you to choose one over
4: the other clinically? Sure, there's there's definitely a lot to unpack there. Now, you can likely divide left atrial appendage therapy into epicardial targets versus endocardial occlusion devices. And epicardial closure is really targeted to remove the left atrial appendage, kills the left atrial appendage when it's done right. So that would include surgical ligation, which is trying to really tightly sew the ostium of the LAA closed with sutures. There's a tendency to have this be incomplete when you look at follow-up imaging. So that's generally becoming like less popular of an option. But the more definitive way is what's called an clip When you're doing a surgical epicardial appendage removal, this can be done by open chest concomitant clip placement or by thoracoscopic minimally invasive surgical placement. And the clip basically is squeezed down like you're taking a tube of toothpaste, right, and rolling all the toothpaste out. You want to get it all the way down to the bottom close to the atrium without squeezing the circumflex artery and when you deploy that clip it just clamps down so tight it causes immediate ischemic necrosis of the appendage and like you can see that on thoracoscopic video it's really impressive you'll see the appendage become electrically isolated it stops contracting turns purple sometimes even black within 90 seconds and you know you could chop it off or just let nature take its course, but the appendage will disappear entirely. So that's an clip. Now, the other epicardial approach that kills the appendage, which is also really effective when it's done right, is the lariat procedure. A little bit tricky procedure to learn. That was the first appendage closure therapy that I did. And The first appendage cases I referred for closure were thoracoscopic clips, but when Lariat became available without clinical trial data, it was really relatively, I would say, sort of bold and bordering on Cavalier to pick this tool up and decide I was going to tie off appendages with it. But boy, when you did it right and really followed the directions, it's like step-by-step an elegant procedure and Delivers a suture that is basically like a noose. You tighten it real tight right at the neck of the appendage. And by the same mechanism as atrial clip, you end up with ischemic necrosis, death of the appendage, it disappears entirely. Occasionally, that process, though, would leave a small central leak of flow as the tissue dies, sort of a potential space could open back up. And so, similar to the surgical ligation approaches, Lariat has maybe a 20% failure rate, where surgical ligation, maybe 30%. clip pretty close to 0% when it's placed in the right spot. So epicardial closures are an option. Now, those used to be more suitable for patients who are totally contraindicated anticoagulation or patients who have like really large left atrial appendages or maybe nickel allergy, other odd things. We can talk about that later, but reasons to do a clip is usually now a bailout because one of the other options didn't work or you're doing a concomitant surgery bypass valve etc or even a hybrid afib ablation will often tag lariat onto that and select cases if the anatomy is not suitable go for clip. both of those really require the ability to get safely into the epicardial space and if you've had prior bypass radiation to the chest, pericarditis, pneumonia, other trauma, things where you're going to have a lot of scar tissue or adhesions in the pericardium, maybe even multiple prior ablations. Those can be really difficult and either you or the surgeon are going to have a really hard time getting on top of the appendage. So mid-1990s, early 2000s, the concept of the appendage closure became enough of a thing that we decided, well, don't want to have to do open-heart surgery on all these patients. What about devices that could be placed endocardially to occlude the appendage. You know, the first one was this Plato device. You can Google it. It's never really gotten great clinical trial data published and eventually was scrapped for various reasons. Atratech was a small company it came up with the original Watchman device. And that was started in a trial called the Protect AF study. So Protect AF was really probably the main landmark trial that ended up getting left atrial appendage therapies, ultimately FDA approved. But the original Watchman device, basically you can think of it, I think of it as like an umbrella, and you basically close the umbrella, stick it in a catheter, put the catheter in the left atrial appendage, and then unsheath the device, opening the umbrella. And the original device is a nitinol frame, so it's nickel-titanium alloy, fabric on the top that's porous, so you can shoot contrast through it, and blood still flows through the fabric until it's been in the body long enough for endothelialization to cover the surface of the device. The original Watchman 2.5 uh, you know, has a ton of data. There was actually two randomized trials, protect and prevail, two registries on top of that. And the four studies together are what ultimately got Watchman 2.5 approved. Watchman Flex is the currently available device. Watchman 2.5 is really not available anymore to implant. And there's some rare cases where it might be nice to still have that device, but for the most part, the Flex devices replaced that. So when we talk Watchman, it's generally really Watchman Flex is what we're talking about. And then Amulet is a different device design. Instead of filling the left atrial appendage with a device, it's more like putting a manhole cover or a bottle cap on top of it. Uh, and the, the device is a two-component device. There's an anchoring lobe, which is one part, and that kind of sticks in the neck of the left atrial appendage. And then attached to that, all nitinol woven is a larger disc that covers the entire ostium of the appendage. And sometimes and really that includes up to the tip of the pulmonary vein ridge. So the amulet is a little more proximal device, covers a wider array of anatomies, sits a little bit more proximal than Watchman. Watchman has the most data and the most implants by a mile. So you're going to see patients with both devices. It's always a good like test the fellow, uh, you know, thing to say like, is this, you show them an x-ray, you know, what device is it? Flex 2.5 amulet. And even now there's additional ones in clinical trials like conformal yeah. and wave crest, which certainly looked more unique on chest x-rays. So you have multiple different devices, really divide them by epicardial closure options, which is surgical and lariat. Uh, lariat mostly being done by EPs, really. The Amaze trial was completed a few years ago. And the follow-up is done. Really, we're still chewing on subgroup analysis because it's been a little hard to find the statistics that we thought we would find in the endpoint. But as far as a stroke prevention option, it's still available. It's just there's not a stroke trial. Watchman, Watchman Flex, and Amulet, you know, all of their trials, the primary endpoint really was stroke and systemic embolism. Those are devices that are endocardial devices and they're based on evidence that they help reduce stroke and systemic embolism uh, as their primary endpoint.
1: Dr. Ellis, thank you so much again for that history of how the devices we're using now were developed. It's you know, amazing to think about how much engineering is required to you know, allow these devices to really work within the anatomy and the, of the left atrial appendage and the physiology of trying to achieve complete occlusion. I know that as i you started to learn to implant these devices that you can see such wide variety in the shape of people's left atrial appendages. The other, I think, question that I had to learn quickly to know the answer to was in my patients who had atrial fibrillation and had had cardiac surgery in the past was to always remember to look and see which of my patients had already had a left atrial appendage clip because we're seeing that more and more in our surgical patients. And I was fascinated to see the last three trial come out last year actually randomizing cardiac surgery patients who had atrial fibrillation to surgical left atrial appendage occlusion versus usual care, showing that even on top of anticoagulation, that reduced the incidence of stroke or systemic embolism. These days, based on that study, based on other events that's out there, which of your patients who are going for cardiac surgery are you recommending left atrial appendage closure in?
4: Oh, well, that's uh, that's interesting. I mean, really, when you look back at the stroke and systemic embolism data from STS registry data that was published showed about a 2% absolute reduction in stroke and systemic embolism if something was done to the left atrial appendage. Now, a huge part of this, as you alluded to, is imaging afterwards to confirm the appendage was actually removed or clipped and what's wild is with laus 3 which is the laao surgical resection study in new england journal last year and in this sts data there's zero post-operative imaging to confirm complete closure the reason that's relevant is when you go back and look at series that have been published with lariat and with surgical ligation the incomplete surgical ligation or lariat rate is somewhere between 25 and 35%. That's an issue because we've learned that leaks still are associated with stroke. You know, if there's any residual flow beyond probably a three millimeter threshold, then you can still get a clinically relevant stroke in that situation from the left atrial appendage or the remnant of the left atrial appendage. Part of the reason for that is, you know, if you look at the, the average diameter of your middle cerebral arteries, intracranial vessels, it's around three to four millimeters. So if anything squeaks out of that, it's big enough to occlude an MCA. So definitely, if you know the patient had a history of surgical closure, verify that with imaging, TEE or ct Then you can make your decisions about what to do from an anticoagulation standpoint, For patients that are going to surgery, if they have atrial fibrillation and a high CHADS-VASc score, I'd say two or higher, really, I feel like it's standard of care now that you should either clip, ligate, or excise the left atrial appendage. And one of the things that really kills you if that is not done, I've seen this on numerous cases, patients having cardiac surgery tend to have, a lot of them will have mitral valve disease, right? So, the left atrium is under a constant pressure to expand, and that includes expansion of the left atrial appendage. And the problem is when the appendage gets large enough and you've already had cardiac surgery, there's no endocardial device option to close that patient's appendage. And if they end up with embolic stroke and a bleed, they're going to be in a real bind because you can't generally find a surgeon that's going to want to redo sternotomy to place a clip, you'll probably have a hard time getting in epicardially and you won't have an endocardial device option. I've seen that on many cases and so that sticks out to me from my own experience of why this has to be standard of care because these patients do come back, the surgeons don't follow them and they don't do imaging after the procedure. So the cardiologist needs to do it or the electrophysiologist or whoever's following the patient really critical to make sure it was completed. Then the question is like, what about anticoagulation? Well, one of the things that's a real problem, I think, on generalizing the Laos 3 data is one, people don't know unless they're really into this, they may not have dug into the methods enough to understand that it was randomized removal of appendage or not. There really weren't a lot of clips in the study. Most of it was surgical ligation or excision. No post-operative imaging, so we don't know if it was really complete. And they didn't tell the doctors anything about what to do in the protocol with anticoagulation. And so like people would forget to stop anticoagulation or they felt like, I don't know, we'll just keep them on anticoagulation until they bleed. So 75% of people remained on a blood thinner, even in the appendage closure group. And in my perception of that, that's even stronger evidence that appendage closure is really important because they closed the appendage. And even though a third of them were incomplete and the patients were mostly still on a blood thinner, accidentally on purpose, I would say, you still got a 35 to 40% reduction in stroke and systemic embolism. So that's a really good evidence that removing the appendage has benefit. There was no significant difference in like the overall real procedure time or hospitalization, but there's actually less heart failure hospitalization days after surgery for the patients that had the appendage closed. That may be partly related to volume management. It's unclear, but it's not like closing the appendage caused a bunch of extra bleeding risk, and it didn't cause people to die from manipulating the appendage. There really was only benefit seen. So my feeling on that, on the surgical ligation part, is, you know, really... This is standard of care now, and you've got a patient with AFib having cardiac surgery. It's worth talking to the surgeon, make sure they have it on their checklist to do. The one reason they may not want to do it, unfortunately, is they don't get paid to do it at all. There's no reimbursable code for it. It does take a little bit of time, but we're talking about a few minutes in general. If it's already, you know, sternotomy open and exposed, clipping costs the cost of the clip, but it's absorbed in a pretty large payment for the DRG for most of these cardiac surgery cases. So I don't think hospitals push back on that much, but there's not much financial incentive to do it, but there's very strong data to do it. Terrific.
2: Thanks for that, Dr. Ellis. This has been just a wonderful discussion about the various approaches and tools we have for addressing the left atrial appendage, the source of clots in many patients with AF and systemic embolism as well as the data around these methods and the limitations. With that background, let's put this in action at the bedside. We get to meet our first hypothetical patient in the made-up CardioNerds EP clinic. This is Mary Crow, a 68-year-old woman with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, type 2 diabetes, and hypertension, who's on epixaban for stroke prophylaxis. Unfortunately, she's been dealing with a recurrent GI bleeding related to a rectocele. She has been admitted twice already for GI bleeding requiring blood transfusions in the recent past. From a multidisciplinary team, non-surgical management has been recommended due to the risk of post-operative incontinence. Unfortunately, this is a scenario that we come across not too uncommonly. Dr. Ellis, what would you advise regarding stroke prevention in this patient?
4: This is a good case, um, and it's it's pretty commonly encountered. It's often that would be a clinical scenario where we're getting a referral to consider appendage closure, but there are several alternatives and there's a lot of details in here that are worth discussing. You know, really the first one, this patient has multiple CHADS-VASC profile risk factors and probably above that they are even higher risk. So they're female, 68, diabetes, hypertension, CHADS-VASC of four. But then there's heart failure with preserved EF and there's Heart failure in the Chad's VASC score is really systolic failure. But as we have obviously learned, HEFPEF carries really the same morbidity and mortality statistics as systolic failure. So, you know, this is maybe a Chad's VASC 5 type patient. Now, she's on half dose NOAC. That's a bit of a sore spot. I, there's actually data published on this that when people are intentionally underdosed on NOAC, the stroke and systemic embolism risk actually goes up. So this is not really a viable strategy. A lot of clinicians do this, make themselves feel like they're helping the patient somehow. But really all you're doing is giving them suboptimal stroke prevention with maybe a slightly lower risk of bleeding. So option one for this patient is go to 5 milligrams twice daily Eliquis and see if she can tolerate it. There are other anticoagulation options as well but i would say data support that rivaroxaban is probably a little higher bleeding risk than apixaban and dabigatran can cause a little bit of increased lower gi bleeding so maybe that's not going to be really an option for her other than going to full dose Eliquis. option two is okay well what if she didn't have a this is real controversial and like Lots of debate about it. There's been clinical trials supporting it and denying its efficacy. It's not a guideline based strategy a- at all. But if you ablated paroxysmal AFib in this patient, if her atrium is small and she's having intermittent AFib, it doesn't really mention if she's on a class one or class three antiarrhythmic drug and you monitor the patient and they have zero AFib, you know, could you just safely withhold anticoagulation? Until and make that decision later when and if a fib presents itself. So those are kind of two ways to look at this, but take that out of the equation. I mean, this is a high net clinical benefit patient to undergo left atrial appendage closure. Generally, what I do when I get a referral like this is I personally like to have the anatomy in hand, both for excluding the probability of an aborted case on the table for anatomic or morphologic reasons and also helps me plan the procedure and device selection to get the best seal we can without leaving peri-device leaks and there's a lot of things you can see on ct or tee that will suggest one device over another it's we're learning this more as we get experience in the real clinical setting using the amulet more frequently This is a paroxysmal patient, young. She's going to have recurrent AFib issues, very likely, and obviously interruption in anticoagulation from GI bleeds. So I would offer that the favorability of doing an appendage closure here is very high.
2: Well, we definitely piqued her curiosity, and she is interested in learning more about options for left atrial appendage closure. In planning that discussion, as well as the procedure, what are some absolute and relative contraindications that we should consider for the currently available devices?
4: Yes, this comes up and I've had to dig into the details here because it can be really important. The number one thing is nickel allergy, actually, and you're going to encounter this. All the endocardial occluders are built on a nitinol weave, so it is a nickel-titanium alloy, and at least like Nobody wants to mess around, I think, with putting these devices in patients and then have some weird inflammatory reaction to the device. So, nickel allergy would generally rule you out on getting an amulet or a watchman. However, it does not exclude you from getting a lariat, which is just ethabon suture, or a V shaped clip. The pro clip has nitinol, but the V clip is a titanium only. So, there are some epicardial options that are not nickel based. I'll generally find patients who have any probable history of this are best to go ahead and get a formal allergy testing done before, you know, you schedule them for anything. So I actually do refer to my allergy colleagues on occasion. The next relative contraindication, or in some cases, it is an absolute is the anatomic restriction from an endocardial sizing factor to place watchman or watchman flex or amulet. That's usually 32 millimeters of osteal width or greater at the left atrial appendage, less than a 10 millimeter depth for implant from the osteum to the back of the left atrial appendage wall. It's probably more difficult to always appreciate when someone's degree of kyphoscoliosis and the angle of attack for transeptal puncture may set you up for an aborted or failed case attempt, but sometimes you look at the patient and be like, you know, this is just going to be difficult. I can think of some cases really petite, low body mass female, 85 plus with bad kyphoscoliosis. You may not get a straight shot to the left atrial appendage, and depending on which device you want to use, there is a steerable sheath that is an option with Amulet. Right now, we don't have that with Watchman, and uh, sometimes that gets you out of these situations where you can successfully implant, and sometimes it, it still won't. From a, a surgical exclusion for the epicardial approaches, such as Lariat or Atriclip, we did talk already a little bit about this, where it causes fibrous adhesions between the pericardial sac and the atrial wall is going to be problematic for these. So again, prior bypass, radiation to the chest, pericarditis, multiple prior ablations. Outside of those, there's not really, I mean, we do them in patients with end-stage renal disease, we'll do them in patients with bad systolic heart failure. I think generally it's, frowned upon to recommend this in someone who has a life expectancy less than a year that encompasses a wide range of clinical scenarios stage 4 cancer malignancy class 4 heart failure and not a candidate for advanced therapies age is a state of mind (laughs) so for sure if you've made it to age 90 you've already outlived all the survival curves that are of any use so You may live another 10 years, who knows? You have longevity, you're active and not immobile. There's definitely patients we've done in their 90s and they've done great. Generally, when I'm looking at that strata of difficulty, we tend to favor going Watchman Flex because of the safety data. So we haven't talked much about complications of the implant, but that's another factor that really comes in when you're looking at the patient and deciding which approach to go with on the whole you're going to get better closure of the appendage with amulet when it's really placed tight it's just a more occlusive device watchman flex the data with that from our pinnacle trial which was 400 plus patients the complication rate was really low like major complications less than one percent and so that's a big deal like especially with the experience some improvements in the delivery sheath and streamlining transeptal puncture knowing a lot more about the imaging characteristics and how to get a optimally a one and done implant where you're not repositioning the device multiple times i would probably say if you're going to try to get it done in 20 minutes with one shot watchman flex is probably the way to go so that's kind of the major sort of absolute contraindications i don't know that I put age for sure as a relative contraindication but certainly longevity and life expectancy have to be calculated into the equation.
1: Absolutely. So much for breaking that down for us. And if I remember correctly, most of the evidence for these devices has centered around non-valvular atrial fibrillation and also some patients with conditions who have higher risk of thrombosis outside the left atrial appendage such as cardiac amyloid have also not been well represented. How do you consider these conditions when considering candidacy for percutaneous atrial appendage closure?
4: Well, rheumatic or valvular heart disease, I mean, really what you're talking about is rheumatic mitral stenosis. And if that's bad enough, you're heading towards mechanical MVR and lifelong warfarin. So, I mean, most of those patients are sort of knocked out of criteria. That being said, I would still get them surgically clipped or ligated when they have the valve procedure done if you're able to. In general though mitral valve disease of the sort of moderate to severe non-rheumatic type we have treatments now and lots of patients are getting combo cases mitra clip plus LAAC staged or simultaneous. Personally I prefer staged. I'm not interested in bumping a clip off when it Took them two hours to put it in the perfect spot. Now, that being said, we do concomitant ablation, Watchman Flex, and that seems to be going very well. So combo cases in the setting of valvular disease, I think is a different category, but like TAVR as well, lots of patients with AS, severe AS, calcific, senile type, really non-affected mitral valve like they don't have clear rheumatic heart disease or mitral stenosis that they're still reasonable candidates and i think in general like though the trials excluded for no acts the trials excluded a lot of patients with a valvular disease the data has built enough that most cardiologists and eps are pretty comfortable using a apixaban or rivaroxaban in the setting of moderate severe mr or tr for sure and even in the setting of moderate aortic stenosis, particularly if the patient is just sort of being stable, chronic observation mode, maybe bicuspid valve, or they don't seem to have rapid progression towards a TAVR or surgery, then they would be indicated properly for NOAC or DOAC. And as such, if they were having difficulty maintaining tolerance for anticoagulation, then left atrial appendage closure could certainly be an option.
3: Hi, hey, Dr. Ellis. Thank you so much for all this information, especially regarding the contraindications. It's always good to know this when we are referring patients for this procedure so they know what to expect. Now, on your point of view, when you see a patient as a consult for, for consideration of percutaneous left atrial appendage closure, how do you go ahead with this conversation in terms of their expectations when it comes to potential complications and side effects? What kind of
4: things do you mention to them to keep in mind regarding this procedure? Sure. So again, this is partly why we do like to have pre-procedure imaging because that can be very helpful. I mean, we can definitely look at certain cases and really feel like it's a quote unquote, a slam dunk. Like this is going to be straightforward, 20 minute case, very low risk. You know, or we can see cases where there's really restricted depth and complex distal anatomy and a large, very elliptical ostium. That's going to be difficult. It may take different devices. At least we have options now. We don't have just one solo device to use. So I'll take into consideration the patient's comorbidities, look at their anatomy, and then discuss with them, here's the options. We've got Watchman Flex, really good safety data, still has some 10% chance of leaving a peri-device leak we might have to deal with, and about a 2% device-related thrombus risk. Amulet, a little bit higher complication rate up front, probably that's a result of experience and getting new operators on board it's some of its device design related, a little bit more aggressive anchoring hooks that maybe cause a problem in some patients, but we'll generally get more complex anatomy sealed better with amulet. And similarly, around a two to three percent device related thrombus risk. Now, you know, really big picture that's key on LAA closure, and I mean it's important for both the implanter and the referring to understand the net clinical benefit of this therapy it is very high if you place the device, they don't get a pericardial effusion, they don't have any peri-device leak at 45 days, 90 days, or one year TE follow-up, and they don't get a device-related thrombus. If you looked at the endpoints of stroke and systemic embolism that got the devices approved and the endpoints in the amulet ide trial which was head-to-head amulet versus watchman 2-5 the patients who had no peri device leak and no complications had a 12-month stroke rate of 0.9 percent and a 18-month stroke rate of 1.6 percent and that's in patients with amulet it was comparable with watchman however because there were more leaks in the Watchman group, there was a higher rate of stroke at 18 months. So, you know, like if you get a perfect implant and you don't get a clot on top of the device and you have a CHADS-VASC score of four and a half, that's almost an 80% risk reduction in stroke compared to your expected stroke rate for that CHADS-VASC number. Uh, and that that's even higher than DOAX across all three of the large trials in terms of risk reduction so that's why the anatomy and looking at the patient's specifics about what is their DRT risk device related thrombus risk that's device clot on top of a partially endothelialized device and that plays into this the things that we know predict DRT now from Several registries that we've helped, along with the Mayo Clinic and others, provide really show permanent AFib is a thing. If the device is implanted too deep, that increases your risk. Chronic kidney disease is a problem, so CKD, and other factors like reduced ejection fraction. Things that really promote stasis are a problem, and hypercoagulable state, if you actually know that's present. That makes you start thinking, okay, well, maybe in a specific patient, you might look at that and say, man, they have a really high DRT risk and they have complex anatomy. Would I be better off doing an atriclip or attempting Larry? Or would I counsel them, we're going to place this device, but we're not going to be in any rush to take you off anticoagulation. I mean, this is like asked me my mom actually got a watchman plex a couple of years ago and knowing everything i know about these devices and knowing that she was able to be on a short-term blood thinner i really asked them to keep her on xarelto or rivaroxone for a good six months after implant she had no issues and then came off of it she's had no drt but it's all about balancing the risk of that extra exposure of anticoagulation and the bleeding risk with not having to deal with device thrombus which is definitely shown to increase stroke and systemic embolism risk after appendage closure. So those are the things with the device, sort of the net clinical benefit issues. On risk, every operator is going to have some varying level of experience with these. For sure, transeptal puncture and getting in and out of the femoral vein with a 16 to 18 French sheath is going to come with a non-zero risk of bleeding issues. Now, putting the device in and having it embolize or fall out can be really bad. It can be fatal. And perforating the heart and causing a pericardial fusion with the sheath, similarly, is potentially life-threatening. You have to look at the patient. There's some frailty factor. There's going to be protective factors. Prior sternotomy, though we don't have, I think, really a ton of published data, it's highly protective. You basically have a wall of scar tissue surrounding the left atrial appendage and a lot of times fusion of the pericardial sac to the atrial wall to where a sheath perforation is much less likely to be an issue and similarly perforation from anchoring hooks or from the device itself is very unlikely. Those are some of the things that we would look at in terms of having complications at implant. And then, really, the complications after implant are two unique things. And one would have to do with the post-procedural drug regimen and what are you going to get away with after the device is placed. It's a key and it's a, an evolving topic. There's a lot of debate about the optimal strategy. I will say from animal studies we've done, it's pretty remarkable We don't look, I mean, nobody really looks routinely like week by week after you place one of these devices, what happens if the patient's not on an anticoagulant, but at least in dogs, if you put a Watchman Flex or an amulet device in and do serial imaging TEE weekly, every animal has device-related thrombus. It's part of the natural foreign body recognition, clotting cascade scenario it's unavoidable, but most of these disappear within four weeks. So the animals heal faster, but they also have a very robust anticoagulation cascade. And so they'll tend to clot more aggressively, but they also endothelialize faster. In humans, we don't know really what the time course is. And there's probably a lot of patient-specific factors about how quickly these devices endothelialize. As you can imagine, apart from having some other strong indication for aspirin or plavix, clopidogrel, if you had total occlusion of the appendage and complete endothelialization, you're basically at the point where the entire left atrium is really completely smooth-walled, and there's nowhere for anything to stick unless they have rheumatic mitral stenosis. They're going to be very safe to come off anticoagulation. How would you know that they're at risk for DRT? Well, you have to stop anticoagulation, and then you have to look. So there's been a gradual change in how we check that after implanting, stopping anticoagulation, perhaps waiting four weeks, and then imaging to see if they need to go back on a blood thinner. But I'll have that discussion with the patients. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about complications, device selection, post-operative drug regimen, and then what to expect six months and beyond really with the ultimate goal, I mean, for all these patients is to get off anticoagulation as soon as possible. And that
0: was just an absolutely beautiful segue. And I know that there's a lot of data and emerging data in this space, but you touched on just some very incredible clinical pearls that I feel like you would never get just from reading the guidelines in terms of the patient-specific factors. Segwaying from that, how do you use these patient-specific factors, some of the recent data to determine post-procedural antithrombotic therapy?
4: Sure. So the easy ones are the epicardial options. So if I do a lariat or an Atriclip, um, we're usually looking at four weeks of antiplatelet therapy, and then they can do really whatever we need to do after that. They don't need to be on anticoagulation at all. So that's Option one is like nice. A cardio closure, good seal, not some patient with bad rheumatic disease or something. They probably just need antiplatelet therapy and that's that. As far as endocardial devices, the reason this is all over the map is the Watchman two point five was studied in the clinical trial, place the device, anticoagulate with warfarin, six weeks, plus aspirin, then switch to dual antiplatelet therapy until six months after implant, then go to aspirin 325. And that ultimately was carried through those first four studies that got FDA approval. And so as a result, that was the FDA label on Watchman. Now, realistically, that's really painful. First of all, just managing warfarin for six weeks. If the patient's not already on it and therapeutic, you're chasing your tail for probably four of those six weeks anyway. Dual antiplatelet therapy does nothing to prevent thrombin formation on these devices. That was sort of a holdover from PFO closure and ASD closure devices. So the dual antiplatelet therapy regimen thing, it's under, I would say, scrutiny currently. It is in the labeling for both Watchman Flex, Watchman 2.5, and Amulet, and now conformal as well. However, I personally almost never use DAPT if the patient can tolerate a NOAC or a DOAC for, say, 90 days. Generally, we'll go, place the device, NOAC, 90 days. used to be NOAC plus aspirin, but we've got registry data now. It's very helpful. James Freeman has done some really nice analysis, helping us understand that that additional antiplatelet therapy for the sort of early healing period is not doing much other than increasing our bleeding event rate. And these are all high-risk bleeding patients, really, that are referred for Watchman or Amulet. So generally, we're going NOAC only, 90 days, stop NOAC, image a few weeks later. If there's no DRT, okay, baby aspirin, and see them in a year. And we do do follow-up imaging one year post-implant. DRT can show up late. And, you know, you don't know the patient doesn't have a DRT unless you look. So that second imaging during sort of a chronic phase on just single antiplatelet therapy, I think it's still very important. Most of us that are real expert in this continue to do the one-year follow-ups. When I talk to a lot of clinicians in practice around the country and see a lot of other centers, protocols, I mean, many people have ditched the one-year imaging and, That's okay until the patient shows up with a stroke. Now, the other reason they might have a stroke is peri-device leak. And that's that's a whole other thing that warrants continued surveillance as well. A lot of leaks in that 45- to 90-day time frame may change over time. That's something that we've done a fair amount of work on studying. A lot of them will expand and get larger over time and be associated with late TIAs or strokes. So surveillance on follow-up for device thrombus and for leaks is important, both early, I would say I just call it early phase and late phase. Late phase is one year, early phase is sort of that 45 days to 90 days. Now, labeling on the devices has changed with this registry data that's built to where Watchman Flex now has the option to go straight to dual antiplatelet therapy after implant so does amulet in fact amulet in their ide trial that was the protocol the watchman patients did the fda approved thing with warfarin and then dap for six months the amulet patients just went straight to DAPT after implant and at least for the first year or so that amulet was clinically available after fda approval that was one of their big marketing points was like hey You can put this device in and immediately be off anticoagulation. That was born out of a necessity due to high bleeding complications from implanting the amulet device. Not so much that we felt like it was immune to device thrombus. And really, if you wanted to prevent device thrombus, again, a drug that actually prevents thrombin formation such as a NOAC or a DOAC is still probably a better option if the patient can tolerate it. So the post-implant drug regimen right now is all over the map. The label includes just dual antiplatelet therapy for both devices for up to six months after implant. And it's not based on a ton of science. (laughs) Really, it doesn't effectively prevent the early thrombus formation. And dual antiplatelet therapy definitely increases your bleeding risk significantly higher than a single antiplatelet therapy regimen would. So we're trying to get ultimately to the point where we place the device and we get you to a single antiplatelet therapy regimen as fast as humanly possible without setting you up for a risk of device-related thrombus stroke or a peri-device leak that was missed and was significant enough to lead to a stroke when the patient came off anticoagulation. That was great. Thank you so much. We're going to switch
3: gears a bit. I'm going to discuss another hypothetical patient, which is similar to some patients I've encountered in the past. This is Mark Wood. He's a 76-year-old man. He has hypertension and was recently diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. He was seeking a second opinion regarding leptitra appendage occlusion because he was recommended oral anticoagulation for stroke prevention, but was concerned regarding bruising and bleeding on these medications. He owns a construction company and is concerned about because he gets frequent minor cuts and scrapes, and he heard about left
4: atrial appendage occlusion. What would be your advice regarding this for such a patient? Yes, this is starting to come up a lot more often, especially with direct-to-patient marketing, that is to say, ads for the Watchman device on TV or the amulet you know, on a bus driving by, and people looking online and knowing more and more of their Peers that have had the device implanted. People come to me a lot in this scenario. So, to be really objective about it, we'd have to say, you know, well, this is a patient who technically can tolerate anticoagulation, and so he should stay on anticoagulation. Now, those are the patients that we're looking for to enroll in one of two landmark trials that are ongoing. And one of them is just about completed enrollment. That's the champion trial and the catalyst trial. So these are patients with the suitable CHADS-VASc score warrant anticoagulation who are tolerating it, don't have any bleeding issues, and then we're randomizing those people one-to-one to either amulet in the catalyst trial or watchman flex in the champion trial versus NOAC or DOAC. Never know which one of those to call it. Anyway, the idea is that in a three-to-five-year follow-up time frame, We think that stroke and systemic embolism should be relatively balanced between the groups, so non-inferior, but the probability of a major or fatal or disabling stroke should be lower in the patients who had appendage closure, and the risk of major bleeding events should similarly be less in the patients with appendage closure. So trials are really powered to be superior on bleeding risk and the risk of fatal or disabling stroke. And so this would be a patient I might entertain enrolling in the CATALYST or CHAMPION trial. Another way to manage this patient, similarly, we briefly discussed it with the first case, is well, I mean, geez, what about ablating his AFib, and he's got aggressively managed his hypertension, you know, make sure he doesn't have sleep apnea, he's not overweight and drinking too much alcohol. Cut the risk factors, ablate the pulmonary veins, and monitor, he may have like no AFib for a good long time. So there you look at him and go, his only risk factor, he's a CHADS-VASC-3, but it's really because of age and hypertension. Age we can't really treat, but hypertension, you know, that it probably matters if you're uncontrolled hypertension versus 120 over 80 on 5 milligrams of lisinopril. So he might get an option there, ablate AFib if it's symptomatic and observe off anticoagulation in that situation might entertain also a loop recorder or or at least very frequent ambulatory monitoring apple watch cardia app that type of thing personally i just prefer the loop because it's sort of automatically transmitting monthly with continuous data so those are things now if he really prods you you probably can get some buy-in from his other physicians, but this is part of the shared decision-making process for appendage closure coverage that is it's a good thing, but it's also kind of painful. And realistically, if the Catalyst and Champion trials come out with the endpoints we expect, I believe the shared decision-making process will be eliminated from the requirement for the decision to move forward with appendage closure because it'll be a suitable alternative really for for any patient with AFib and a Chad vasque of two or higher. This patient, I'd probably go, let's see about Catalyst Champion, consider ablating his AFib, treat the AFib, treat his risk factors. And if he really presses, you could open the discussion a bit about what is a high risk occupation for anticoagulation. I have had no problems from insurance companies when it's when it seems really legitimate. Police officers, firefighters military that scenario where you're likely to potentially have really severe trauma that could lead to fatal bleeding and it's part of your lifestyle or occupation you probably can get that covered he's 76 might be medicare only so you could probably still do it but you really have to document well the discussions and the buy-in from his other physicians about why he gets an appendage closure device, even though he's generally doing okay on a blood thinner.
3: Oh, that's great. Thanks so much, Dr. Ellis. It's good to highlight that it's not all black and white. The care has to be individualized to the patient. I do have one extra question, if you do not mind. What is your point of view on regarding Imaging prior to undergoing cardioversion in patients that have undergone left atrial appendage occlusion. What has been your experience in this?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. It comes up all the time now because there's so many people with these devices. We came up with a protocol in our hospital. I think that seems pretty reasonable. Most of the data would suggest if you have complete occlusion of the appendage, no leak, and you're known to not require any other intervention on the LAA to get occlusion, then you probably don't need to anticoagulate them after you cardiovert them. Now, if you are coming for cardioversion, I still recommend TEE. And the reason is to pick up late device-related thrombi. If you've had the one-year follow-up TEE on a single antiplatelet therapy only, and there's no DRT, You can probably skip TEE portion of it. And just depending, I guess, on the comfort level of the operators, like I'll sometimes get pushback from the echo lab to do a TEE when the patient's already had a bunch of them that showed complete occlusion. But on the other side, you know, some of the TEE operators will just go ahead and do it without without any question. So generally, I'd say, you know, that's the reason to do it is to look for late device thrombus. At this point, it seems to me a very flawed concept to say that if there's no left atrial appendage, that you still have to anticoagulate the patient for a month after cardioversion. And particularly, appendage closure patients tend to be higher bleeding risk anyway. And so why do you want to force them to bleed for four weeks and put them at risk when there should be no real like, obvious clinical benefit to a four-week course of anticoagulation? people without appendages go in and out of persistent afib on their own all the time and we don't re-anticoagulate them right like we see this on pacemaker diagnostics we see it patients coming in for an ablation whatever it is so there's not anything specific about the conversion from afib to sinus rhythm that causes left atrial thrombus it's left atrial appendage thrombus and it's such a dynamic thing when you look at the appendage emptying velocity and smoke sludge or spontaneous contrast, I mean, we can make it happen and we can make it go away. But the only place that it's really going to ultimately be relevant is in the process leading to left atrial appendage thrombus. So if there's no appendage and there's nothing hanging on top of the appendage closure device, there's really not, I don't think, any rationale for continuing anticoagulation. And there are published series now, multi-center series with a safe observation of 30 days post cardioversion and no uptick in stroke rate if the patient is converted, but they don't get put on a blood thinner. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellis. All right. Thank you for
3: spending this time with us. We truly appreciate it. I know you're a very busy man and you probably have to get back to either relaxing or seeing some patients in the hospital. But before we let you go, we would like to know what makes your heart flutter regarding
4: electrophysiology? <laughs> That's a good one. Well, my mom and dad make my heart flutter because they both have AFib and atrial flutter. So I'm kind of doomed. Uh, so it's a good thing I'll, I'll know a lot about my treatment option when I do get AFib. But no, I mean, electrophysiology is awesome, right? It's the study of the electrical circuits of life. Like you can't live without electrophysiology. So thusly, a lot of what we do is quite dramatic. I mean, just like last week in clinic, I can't even tell you, there was probably four patients that came in that I did something for them in the last 10 to 12 years. And, you know, they're just still like, thank you for saving my life or thank you for getting me off blood thinners or thank you, just thank you. And so patients are very appreciative. Like like everybody has an electrical system. I've got one and it's destined to go into AFib at some point. So it's a great, great field and combines sort of the intellectual parts of, AFib and arrhythmia management, along with the sort of the no guts, no glory of intervention or invasive therapy, which, you know, can really be uh, life-changing for a lot of patients.
1: Wow. Electrical circuits of life. I may have to borrow that one from you sometime. I love it. I just want to echo what Justice said, and thank you very much, Dr. Ellis, for your time and for giving us a truly expert insight into the individualized way that we really have to be thinking about mechanical stroke prevention for our patients. I also want to thank, again, my co-chair, Colin Blumenthal, and CardioNerds founder, Amit Goyle, for joining us here today, and particularly want to thank Justice Aranafo for joining us and for developing the content for this great episode. So, thank you all.